everybody, and welcome back to Nightmare Fuel. If I sound a little annoyed, it's because I am. Um, I use Logic to record these episodes, and the past two times I tried to record it, it froze right before exporting, and I didn't save because I'm an idiot and I thought it had autosave like Premiere's products do, um, but apparently it doesn't. So I do apologize for the delay in getting a new episode up. On top of the tech issues, I also just had a really bad February and early March at work. I'm talking multiple 11 to 12 hour days and a ton of bullshit and I was in trials and it was it was just a lot. <laughs> um, so I kind of had to take a step back from the podcast to make sure I didn't go completely insane while trying to do my nine to five. I don't think I've ever really explained what I do full time, but I work in the legal industry as a it's kind of, I, I don't really know what my title would technically be because I do a lot of different things, but I just essentially help lawyers use technology and different types of media to help them win their cases. So I film and edit depositions and witness statements, and I film videos and make graphics, and sometimes, like earlier this week, I am in the courtroom running the technology and showing documents and videos. So we know a good percentage of you don't really give a shit, um, but my job experience kind of ties into today's subject. My company works a ton with medical malpractice lawyers, and I typically am filming doctors' depositions at least once or twice a week. Even in other types of cases like car accidents, doctors are still used as expert witnesses in assessing the damages. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is that I have a ton of intel onto doctors and the legal industry and the rules that they're supposed to follow, and what can happen if they don't. So this was definitely an interesting case for me to research. With all of that being said, let's dive right into Harold Shipman, probably the world's worst doctor. On January 14th, 1964, Harold Frederick Shipman Jr. was born in Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, England. He was the middle child of Harold Shipman Sr. and Vera Britton. His parents were middle class and they raised their three children as strict Methodist Christians. He passed his 11 plus exams in 1957, where he ended up moving to the High Pacement Grammar School in Nottingham. Now, no amount of One Direction fanfiction could teach me about the school system over in the UK, so I had to look up what an 11 plus exam was. This is essentially a standardized test that students would take if they were trying to like get into a private school or a school that only accepted students based on merit. In my head, I kind of compared this to the SATs, but for a little bit younger kids and like high school instead of teenagers and getting into college. Now, despite his private school education, as he got older, he seemed to get less and less smart, which sounds kind of mean, but apparently it's true. I do get that though. I was way ahead in terms of like reading level and shit like that in elementary school, but once I got into high school, AP classes were like pulling teeth. Through school, Shipman was pretty involved in a lot of different activities. He was apparently a really good rugby player and played in the youth leagues. He was a distance runner for track, and he even ended up being the vice captain of the school's athletic team. With all of this being said, you would probably think that he took on the role of a popular kid, seeing as athletes usually held that spot in the high school hierarchy. But Shipman was actually quite the opposite. He was a loner and didn't really have too many friends. A lot of his classmates didn't even remember him, um, and those that did described him like this, quote, 
It's as if he tolerated us. If someone told a joke, he would smile patiently, but Fred, which was Shipman's nickname, never wanted to join in. Some also spoke on how his personality kind of shifted on the soccer field, where he was said to have gotten very aggressive and very competitive. Now, even though he didn't have a ton of friends at school, it's said that Shipman was incredibly close with his mother. Multiple sources made the claim that he was her favorite child, and that she played a very large role in how Shipman viewed himself as superior to others. One neighbor said, quote, Vera was friendly enough, but she really did see her family as superior to the rest of us. Not only that, but you could tell that Harold was her favorite, the one that she saw as the most promising of her three children. End quote. Vera was apparently incredibly domineering in her favorite son's life, like helicopter mom to the max. She decided who Shipman was allowed to play with, what he was allowed to do, and even dressed him very formally to uphold this essence of superiority that she instilled in him. Towards the end of his school career, Shipman's mother passed away from lung cancer when he was 17 years old. His mother's passing was a pretty big turning point in his life. The way in which he watched his mother die is actually the same way that he later killed his own patients. In the days leading up to her death, Vera had a home nurse that would come by and administer morphine to help with the pain that she was experiencing from her disease. Shipman noticed how this drug made his mother feel a lot better leading up to her death and took notes for the future. Only three years later, when Shipman was 19 years old, he married a woman by the name of Primrose May Oxtoby. Primrose was equally as dictated by her parents. They controlled her friends and her activities much like Vera did to Harold. She was actually five months pregnant with their first child at the time of their wedding. One of the articles that I read for this research uh, described that she was, quote, no poster girl, end quote, and that she was just excited to have a boyfriend. So getting pregnant and married at only 17 years old did not seem to be a huge issue for her. Now, his mother's passing wasn't only a catalyst in his MO later in life, but it was actually the reason that he decided to go to medical school. Like I mentioned before, he did kind of fall off the intellectual bandwagon as he navigated throughout high school, so he did kind of have a hard time getting into med school in the first place. He failed his entrance exams the first time he took them and had to retest. He eventually got accepted to the University of Leeds Medical School, where his grades were decent enough to get him through the program. He graduated in 1970 and began working at the Pontefract General Infirmary in Yorkshire. He flew under the radar for about four years in that position before accepting his first role as a general practitioner at the Abraham Ormerod Medical Center in Todmorden, West Yorkshire. That was a mouthful of words that I did not know how to say. At this point, he was a father of two, and his personality did a complete 180. He was said to have been outgoing and friendly enough as he shifted into this role and began his journey into being a respected member of the medical community. While his patients and fellow doctors held high opinions of Shipman, the staff in the medical offices definitely saw a different side of him. He was described as, quote, unnecessarily rude, and he even called a lot of the staff stupid to their face, as a term to express his dislike towards them. Office staff also described him as confrontational and combative to the point where people felt belittled and embarrassed by his comments. But again, this was completely different from how his patients and fellow or senior doctors viewed him. He was only at Abraham Ormerod Medical Center for about a year before he got caught forging prescriptions of a medication called pethidine, an opioid painkiller, for his own personal use. A receptionist at the practice named Marjorie Walker noticed that Shipman's controlled narcotics ledger was all sorts of fucked up. 
He had been overordering and overprescribing pethidine for months. This discovery of Shipman's narcotics ledger launched a full-on covert investigation by the practice, where they found that most of the patients on the prescription list did not require this drug, nor did they ever receive it. This led to essentially an intervention. Shipman was called into a staff meeting where Dr. John Dacre confronted him about the drugs. One of the other doctors at the practice later recounted, quote, We were sat round with Fred sitting on one side, and up comes John on the opposite and says, now, young Fred, can you explain this? And he puts before him the evidence that has been gleaning, showing that young Fred had been prescribing pethidine to patients and they'd never received the pethidine. And in fact, the pethidine had found its way into Fred's very own veins. Now, once Shipman realized he was kind of fucked, he began to beg for a second chance. Again, this completely backfired because, I mean, this kind of shit is a huge liability for medical practices, and once you ignore the problem, the whole practice is fucked, not just the doctor who did the things. When the partners at the practice were like, yeah, no dude, sorry, get out, Shipman showed his true colors. He was enraged and stormed out of the room, throwing a medical equipment bag to the ground and screaming about how he was going to resign so they could not fire him. Now, the other doctors were so shocked about Shipman's reaction because he had them all fooled with this nice guy act. If this wasn't bad enough as it was, Shipman's wife Primrose actually made her way down to the office, and she busted into the room where Shipman's bosses and peers were trying to figure out the best way to get rid of him. She came in with a ton of attitude and claimed that he would not resign and that they would have to force him out which is exactly what ended up happening, along with Shipman being sent to a drug rehabilitation center in 1975. So Shipman technically committed some crimes during his drug addiction, but was only charged with a 600 Great British Pound fine for fraud and forgery. Now, this should have been enough evidence for Shipman that he is not good at being a fraud or at forgery, and him being bad at these things is actually what got him caught for his murders over 20 years later. There's actually a theory out there that Shipman's pethidine addiction wasn't real and that he'd actually begun stealing these drugs to kill patients at this time, which is way earlier than originally thought by any investigators. Despite his charges of fraud and forgery and his suspected drug addiction, he stayed in hide while his career and reputation in the medical field grew throughout the 1980s. He began working as a general practitioner at the Donnybrook Medical Center, where he went back to being the charming and confident guy that he was pretending to be before he got caught with the pethidine. But again, this hardworking, nice guy act was only shown to the people that he was trying to impress, whereas the people working under him frequently described Shipman as sarcastic, abusive, and patronizing. In 1993, Shipman opened his own practice at 21 Market Street in Hyde, but it wasn't until 1998 when people began to grow concerned with the high number of deaths among Shipman's patients. A local undertaker named Alan Massey was the first person to vocalize his concerns after seeing a strange pattern with all of Shipman's deceased patients. He was quoted as saying, quote, Anybody can die in a chair, but there's no set pattern, and Dr. Shipman's always seem to be the same or very similar. Could be sat in a chair, could be laid on the set, but I would say about 90% was always fully clothed. There was never anything in the house that I saw that indicated the person had been ill. It just seems that the person, where they were, had died. There was something that didn't quite fit, end quote. 
Massey's concerns grew to the point where he felt he needed to confront Shipman himself, which in hindsight is probably a bad choice, you know, confronting someone you believe to be a serial killer about him potentially being a serial killer could end very, very badly. But Massey did anyway. He approached Shipman and asked him if there was any reason for him to be concerned about the manner of his patient's death. Shipman responded with a quick, no, there isn't, and even went as far as showing Massey his certificate book. This book is what Shipman used to issue death certificates to his patients, and he told Massey that, quote, there's nothing to worry about, you have nothing to worry about, and anybody who wants to inspect this book can. Which, again, was kind of bold on Shipman's part, because what did that book really prove besides the fact that he wrote death certificates? However, Massey fell to Shipman's charm, and his concerns were eased a little bit by how confident and calm Shipman came across in the face of the confrontation. Massey decided not to take any further action into Shipman at this time, but a funeral director by the name of Debbie Brambroff and her friend Dr. Susan Booth were not as easily convinced as to Shipman's innocence. Now, apparently there is, or at least was, a British law that required a doctor from an unrelated practice to co-sign any cremation forms issued by the treating physician. Dr. Susan Booth went down to the funeral director's office or building and met with Debbie Brambroff, who was responsible for the body of one of Shipman's patients. Brambroff confided in Dr. Booth with essentially the exact same concerns that Massey took to Shipman himself. Dr. Booth was quoted as saying, quote, she was concerned about the number of deaths of Shipman's patients that they'd attended recently. She was also puzzled by the way in which the patients were found. They were mostly female, living on their own, found dead sitting in a chair, fully dressed, not in their night clothes, lying ill in bed. Booth took Brambroff's concerns very seriously and took them to a couple of her colleagues, one of them being Dr. Linda Reynolds. Linda Reynolds, a doctor at the Brooks Surgery in Hyde, agreed that these deaths were far too similar to be ruled coincidental, and she contacted John Pollard, the coroner for the South Manchester District. Now, Pollard agreed that the numbers were pretty suspicious, and he and Dr. Reynolds ended up taking their concerns to the police. At this point, the police were not able to find enough evidence to bring charges against Shipman and were forced to close the investigation. They secretly went through all of Shipman's patients' medical records and found that the treatments he provided matched up perfectly with the causes of death. So police officially closed their investigation into Harold Shipman on April 17, 1998. What police didn't know was that Shipman went back into the medical records and rewrote them after he murdered his patients so that everything lined up perfectly. At this point, police also didn't look back into Shipman's criminal record, which in my head should be like the literal first step in any investigation, let alone an investigation into what people think might be a serial killer. But if they didn't skip this step, they might have done a little bit more of a thorough investigation once they realized his past drug abuse and forgery charges. On June 24th, 1998, so like a little over two months after police closed their investigation on Shipman, Kathleen Grundy, who was the former mayor of Hyde, was found dead in her home, and you guessed it, she was one of Shipman's patients. Now, her death was sudden and a huge surprise to the community because she was really active for an 81-year-old woman. She was constantly working with local charities and was described as having, quote, energy to burn up until the day of her death. Kathleen was noticed as missing when she didn't show up to a meeting at the Age Concern Club, where she helped serve meals to even more elderly than she was people. 
This set off alarm bells to the members of the club because she was known for her punctuality and was always super reliable. So it wasn't like her to just not show up. When Kathleen didn't show, her fellow club members went to her home to check in on her. When they arrived, they found her fully dressed in her day clothes, lying on the couch dead. Their first call, Dr. Harold Chipman. Shipman told the woman that he had been to Kathleen's only a few hours before to take some blood samples for a study that he was doing on aging. Shipman went on to pronounce Kathleen dead, and the next person to learn of her passing was her daughter, Angela Woodruff. Shipman convinced Angela to forego an autopsy, claiming that since he was there just a few hours before her death, it wasn't needed. This makes zero sense to me, but when a doctor tells grieving people to do something, they probably just go ahead and listen instead of questioning. Now, Angela was shocked to hear that her mother died. She wasn't ill, so this kind of came out of nowhere. But she was even more shocked when she was contacted by someone claiming to have a copy of her mother's will. Angela was a lawyer, and her firm was responsible for overseeing Kathleen's will, which was originally created in 1986. Obviously, Angela wanted to take a look at this will since she had no idea that it existed, and when she did, she immediately noticed that it was badly typed and poorly written. Angela knew that it was a fake the second that she saw it, let alone when she got to the part that revealed that her, quote, mother had left 386,000 Great British pounds to Shipman. During the trial, Angela testified, quote, My mother was a meticulously tidy person. The thought of her signing a document which is so badly typed didn't make any sense. The signature looked strange. It looked too big. The concept of mom signing a document leaving everything to her doctor was unbelievable. It wasn't a case of, look, she's not left me anything in her will. Angela's first thought wasn't that Shipman was responsible for her mother's death, but it was actually that she thought he was being framed. I think that this really just goes to show how well-trusted and highly esteemed this doctor was in his community. All it took was Angela interviewing the fake will's witnesses to come to the conclusion that Shipman had murdered her mother and made a fake will for the money. She went straight to the police and shared the information with Detective Superintendent Bernard Postles. He opened another investigation into Shipman and quickly came to the same conclusion that Angela did. Later, Postles was quoted as saying, quote, You only have to look at it once and you start thinking it's like something off a John Bull printing press. You don't have to be 20 years as a detective to know it's a fake. Maybe he thought he was being clever, an old lady, nobody around her. Look at it, it's a bit tacky, but everyone knew she was sharp as a tack. Maybe it was his arrogance. They determined that greed was the motive behind this specific murder, but that did not explain the others that they were now at this point really convinced that he committed. Even with Detective Postles on Angela's side, they still needed solid evidence and proof that Shipman intentionally murdered Kathleen. The only way to go about this now was to exhume her body. Now, apparently, exhumations are incredibly rare in England, and this was actually the first one that the Greater Manchester Police Department had ever done. Since none of the officers on their team had ever dealt with this before, they had to call in help from the National Crime Squad, which sounds kind of badass. Kathleen's exhumation may have been the Greater Manchester Police's first, but it certainly was not their last. By the start of the Shipman trial, they had exhumed nine bodies. Once exhumed, tissues and hair samples were collected from Kathleen's body and were sent to multiple different labs for analysis. While waiting for the results to arrive, police didn't waste any time in collecting more evidence. 
they needed to time it right so that they were able to collect evidence from Shipman's home and office before he learned of the exhumation and had time to discard of any evidence. When the police arrived at his home, Shipman was described as arrogant and contemptuous as police read out the search warrant. Probably the biggest thing that police was able to seize during the warrant was a brother manual portable typewriter. When police went to grab it, Shipman began spewing off a story about how Kathleen would sometimes borrow it from him. Obviously, no one believed this, and his sad attempt at an explanation actually came back to bite him in his trial later. Forensic scientists were able to confirm that the typewriter taken from the Shipman home was in fact the same exact machine used to type the counterfeit will, as well as other counterfeit documents and medical records. While searching his home office, police were also able to find a whole bunch of medical records and some jewelry that did not belong to him or his wife. Police also described the Shipman home as dirty. (laughs) It was full of dirty clothes and old newspapers and dishes, and it was just generally unkempt. Now, the toxicology report was written by Julie Evans, and she found that a morphine overdose was the cause of Kathleen Grundy's death, and that she died within three hours of injection. Detective Postles was shocked at Shipman's use of morphine because doctors should know that morphine stays in the body for like a really, 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 really long time and could be detected in tissue samples centuries after injection. Shipman's ego and superiority complex might have blinded him. He assumed he was never going to be caught, so he really didn't have to worry about what kind of drug he chose to use to kill his patients. This obviously was not the case, and Detective Postles even commented that his use of morphine helped prosecution's case because they could prove not only that Kathleen didn't take it on her own, but also it isn't a naturally occurring substance in the body. He said if Shipman was smart, he would have made it more difficult by using a drug like insulin, which humans naturally produce. Desperate, Shipman would later try to spin the story to portray Kathleen Grundy as an addict instead of the sweet, giving old lady that she was said to really be. Detectives began to become increasingly aware that Kathleen Grundy was probably not Shipman's only victim, and they began working through his extensive patient list to see who else's death he could have played a part in. Now remember, Shipman had been a doctor for like 20 years at this point. Um, That is a ton of potential patients, so police had to narrow down who they were looking into. They started by going through patients who had been buried and had died following a house call from Shipman. These patients would be easier to collect samples from through an exhumation, so they started with them. From there, police began to investigate the large number of patients that Shipman had cremated. He was able to manipulate a lot of families into cremating their loved ones, and like he convinced Angela to forego having them autopsied or examined after death. His ability to convince families to do this really just came down to manipulating them during an incredibly stressful and sad point in their lives. The investigation into past patients revealed another 14 later confirmed victims of Shipman on top of Kathleen Grundy. While looking through medical records on Shipman's office computer, police were able to see the exact date and time that he made edits to the medical records. Now, remember, this was, like, right when computers came out, so Shipman had no idea that his hard drive was marking the dates and times of these changes down to the second. In a police interrogation, which I unfortunately could not find the recording of, Shipman, for lack of better terms, got got. (laughs) 
police pulled up the medical records and were basically like, can you explain why you made a note on May 11th, 1998, but dated it October of 97? And he pulled the, uh, I don't remember doing that card. He was noted as being unwilling to work with the police through their investigation, which makes both a ton and no sense at all. It makes a lot of sense because we know that he's egotistical and has a superiority complex, but it makes no sense at the same time because he knew that they had so much evidence to prosecute their case against him. After a couple more rounds of questioning when police basically just told him they had all of this evidence against him, it was time for trial to begin. There was actually a little bit of lawyer drama before the trial could actually start. So Shipman's attorney, Nicola Davies, who was usually not a criminal defense attorney, had three requests for the court. The first one is that she wanted the trial to be continued, or as they say in England, halted. This essentially means that she wanted some more time before the beginning of trials so that the media attention and the noise would quiet down before starting. Davies argued that Shipman would not be able to get a fair trial with how much media attention had been surrounding the case. Specifically, she mentioned that a lot of newspapers were publishing around 150 patient cases, as well as a ton of coverage on the exhumations. The prosecution, led by Sir Richard Henriques, argued that the vast media coverage was actually beneficial to the public. It gave the public an opportunity to look into their own loved ones' deaths and see if they had anything that they thought was suspicious. Attorney Davies also requested that there be three separate trials instead of one large one for all 15 victims. She believed that Kathleen Grundy's murder should have been tried separately since the motive was different. The second trial, according to Davies, should have been for the buried victims since they were the only bodies that they had proof of morphine poisoning on. The third trial would be for the victims who were cremated since there was, quote, no physical evidence of death, end quote. Sir Henrys obviously disagreed with her plan, saying that since they were all interrelated, they should be tried together so that the judge and the jury could be given a more cohesive story as to what happened to all the victims. The last request that Attorney Davies had definitely shocked the prosecution and the court system as a whole. She asked that the evidence referred to in what was called Volume 8 be disallowed. Let me explain exactly what Volume 8 was real quick. Volume 8 of prosecution's evidence contained information about how Shipman acquired the morphine he eventually used to kill his patients. It showed how he would prescribe morphine to his patients who very clearly did not need it to treat their illnesses, and when they died or were killed, Shipman would continue to prescribe it to them and would just take it for himself. It also contained information about how Shipman prescribed other opiates to still-living patients that did not need them, and again, would just keep them for himself. Now, none of these requests were actually accepted, and Sir John Thane Forbes, the judge in the Shipman case, explained that there was essentially no ground for any of these requests to be granted. He further explained that Dr. Harold Shipman would be indicted on 16 different charges, 15 for murder and one for forgery. The trial began on October 11th, 1999, with jury selections taking place first thing in the morning. After the jury of 12 locals was picked, attorney Richard Henriques delivered his opening statements for the prosecution side. Now, Sir Henriques was actually a pretty well-known attorney from his work on the Jamie Bulger case. This was a case where two 10-year-old boys kidnapped, tortured, and murdered a two-year-old boy. This is actually the first time that I've heard of that case, so if you guys want, I could definitely look into that one more and see if there's enough for its own episode. 
But anyway, in his openings, Henriques said, quote, none of those buried or indeed cremated were prescribed morphine or diamorphine. All of them died most unexpectedly. All of them had seen Dr. Shipman the day of their death, end quote. He followed this statement with a brief overview of the case, being sure to immediately point out that these were not mercy killings, since none of the victims had actually been terminally ill or any sort of serious illness at the time of their murder. He went on to make the claim that Shipman murdered simply because he enjoyed it and the obsession with power and control led him to kill to get the ultimate high. Now, if you're unfamiliar with how trials typically work, the prosecution, or plaintiff in a civil case, presents all of their evidence first. Defense has the opportunity to cross-examine any witness brought forth. Once the prosecution gets through everything that they have that they want to share with the jury and the judge, they rest their case and the defense has the opportunity to present their own witnesses and evidence, and like before, the prosecution has a chance to cross-examine any of them. After defense finishes presenting all their evidence, the defense rests, and the jury begins deliberation. That said, the first witness for the prosecution was Angela Woodruff, Kathleen Grundy's daughter. Angela was described as being a lot like her mother, a very strong, accomplished woman, but once she took the stand, it's reported that she had a very difficult time maintaining her confident demeanor, and came very close to breaking down multiple times throughout her testimony, which obviously is entirely justified when you're testifying about your mother's murder. So during her testimony, she recounted her relationship with her mom, details about her mother's home, and then the phone call that she received from Hyde police on the day of her death. Angela also made sure to explain how detail-oriented her mother was, and she was neat, well-spoken, and cared a lot about being meticulous. This obviously discredited that horribly written fake will that Shipman came up with, and her attention to detail in her writing was actually exemplified in her personal diary, essentially proving that the will leaving money to Shipman could not have been written by the same person. Angela then went on to describe a conversation she had with Shipman where he admitted to being at Mrs. Grundy's home the morning of her death, but at the time, Angela couldn't remember his reasoning for being there. She recounted that her mother was really healthy considering her age of 81 years old, and that they would frequently go on walks of up to five miles long. There was even a long-running joke in the family that Mrs. Grundy was in better physical shape than her daughter and younger friends. Now, basically the only thing that defense could use on cross-examination of Angela was the family's wealth. She brought up all of Angela's finances before making the statement, quote, you're not a family in need, are you? End quote. Angela agreed and told the court that not only did she and her husband both make very good money at work, but they had also just recently inherited about a million Great British Pounds after her father-in-law's death. Defense also tried to portray Angela and Kathleen's relationship as strained, but this was practically immediately shot down by examining an entry in Kathleen's diary, as well as having a bunch of other witnesses testify that their relationship was solid. This seems like such a shot in the dark to try to get the jury to not feel bad for her, but geez, like, her mom was just murdered, so maybe let's cool it on trying to make her the bad guy. <laughs> As someone who just sat in a courtroom and watched witnesses get questioned on the stand, there is definitely a way to go about it, and that is 500% not it. Angela was on the stand for, quote, several days, so I cannot even begin to imagine the emotional toll that that must have taken on her. The next witness called by the prosecution was Dr. John Rutherford. 
He was a government pathologist that was highly regarded in England, and he was a lot more confident and put together throughout his time on the stand. This is what we would call expert witness testimony, where attorneys will find someone that has years and years of experience and education and certifications in a certain field, and they, at least in America, get paid to go to court and testify for whichever side hires them. They use their extensive knowledge in their fields to provide opinions to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. If you've ever heard the term hired gun, Dr. John Rutherford would be the perfect example. Dr. Rutherford explained to the jury in, quote, gruesome detail, the process of autopsying bodies and collecting tissue samples for analysis. He went on to explain the various toxicology tests that were run and how all of the results were the same. Dr. Rutherford concluded that none of the victims had died from old age or natural disease, and that morphine toxicity was the cause of death in all cases. Now, Dr. Rutherford also happened to be a fingerprint expert and even did work on the Waco disaster in Texas a few years prior. Rutherford took fingerprints from Kathleen Grundy's body during the examination and compared them to fingerprints left on the will that the prosecution was claiming was a fake. Now, the defense hated this, and tried to say that the method in which Dr. Rutherford collected the prints was inadmissible, but his reputation and expertise essentially overruled the claim in and of itself. The main reason defense was trying to get this evidence thrown out was because, after analyzing the fingerprints on the will, Kathleen Grundy's were not a match to any of the three pairs found. The only matches were the two witnesses, and you guessed it, Dr. Harold Shipman. This essentially proved beyond any kind of doubt that Mrs. Grundy did not write this will. But to really nail it into the ground, prosecution also had a calligraphy analyst named Michael Allen analyze the signatures, which he called, quote, crude forgeries. And we know that Shipman is not good at forging. <laughs> the last expert witness that prosecution called was a computer analyst named Detective Sergeant John Ashley, who testified about how Shipman's computer recorded the dates and times of when he went back and changed patients' medical records. These claims were backed up by clips of recorded police interviews with Shipman where he couldn't come up with any excuse other than, I didn't do that, for why the records were changed. The next group of people to testify against Shipman were a bunch of his staff and colleagues. They all had accounts of how he knew about the police being onto them and would joke and make comments about how, quote, the only thing I did wrong was not having her cremated. If I had her cremated, I wouldn't be in all this trouble. A different patient who made it out of Shipman's care alive said that he confided in her about the case against him. He allegedly said, quote, I was going to say I didn't want the money, but because of all this trouble, I will have it, end quote, going as far as claiming that he would have donated money to charity. One of Shipman's colleagues, Dr. John Grenville, testified against him as well. He analyzed Shipman's notes and records and came up with a pretty large list of things that he would have done differently as a doctor that actually gives a shit about his patients. He said that Shipman didn't even look over Kathleen Grundy's body, didn't check for a pulse, and didn't try any revival methods like CPR, which goes against the standards of care. Now, Kathleen Grundy's portion of the case took over a week, close to two weeks of the trial time. The next part of the trial, they started to go over the other 14 victims that they knew he killed in a similar way to Kathleen, minus the will fraud. This is where a new piece of evidence came to light. Shipman would pretend to call an ambulance if the victim's families were around at the time of the murders. 
One specific instance of this was in the murder of Lizzie Adams. Lizzie was described as a vibrant 77-year-old woman who loved dancing and her partner William Catlow. William entered Lizzie's home one day for a visit and saw Shipman looking over her collections of porcelain and crystal. Now, William said that he ran past Shipman and into the room where Lizzie was, saying that she still felt warm and that he thought he felt a pulse. Instead of helping or checking, Shipman just disregarded him and said, quote, No, that's your pulse. I'll cancel the ambulance. Obviously, there was no ambulance on the way, and phone records confirmed that one was never called. Another thing about Shipman's trial was that he was consistently getting caught in lies. He would obviously never own up to anything, and when he got caught in a lie, he would fumble to find a new one. An example of this was in the case of Nora Natal. After murdering Nora in the exact same way he murdered all of his other patients, the family came to his office to request medical records. He tried to just tell them that Nora called the office saying she felt sick and he just so happened to be in the area, so he swung by her house. Prosecution was able to use phone records again to prove that this never happened, and he immediately tried to come up with a new story about how he ended up in her home that day. Essentially, every single time he opened his mouth in court, his credibility was demolished. Family members of other victims claimed that Shipman would call them to notify them of their loved one's deaths and would essentially just play a guessing game with them on the phone. After Jean Lilly's murder, Shipman called her husband, Albert, to tell him the news. He went on this tangent about how he'd been trying to convince her to go to the hospital for quite some time, but now it's too late. When Albert asked what he meant by too late, Shipman just said, quote, you're not listening to me carefully, and made Albert guess what happened to his wife. The same kind of thing happened after Winnie Miller's murder. Shipman called her daughter and was equally as cruel on the phone, saying that her mother, quote, refused treatments. Winnie's daughter, named Kathleen, said that she would be there soon to help, and he responded with, quote, no, no, there's no need for that. Kathleen thought that this meant she just agreed to go to the hospital, but Shipman said, quote, there's no point in sending her to the hospital. Again, just playing this really fucked up game, where he was essentially just trying to make her ask if her mother was dead. Now, I could go on for like 40 pages about all of the fucked up things that came out during this trial and how d his defense attorneys had a near impossible task of defending him, but this would be a three hour long podcast if I did that. So I'll just quickly go over the biggest point that the defense tried to make, what disproved it, and then I'll move on to the verdict and the sentence and tell you a little bit about each of the victims. Again, the defense had a near impossible job here. Shipman ruined his credibility, and at this point, everyone knew he was guilty. However, as a last-ditch effort to do their job, Shipman and his attorneys tried to claim that multiple of his patients were long-term drug abusers, and that they died due to their own personal morphine use. This was so rude and disrespectful to the victims, especially since everything that I've read about all of them is that they were some of the sweetest, nicest people. To prove that this wasn't true in the slightest, prosecution hired Dr. Karch Steven. Dr. Steven was an American doctor who specialized in a new technique of drug testing, the hair follicle test. It's an incredibly accurate test that analyzes the hair and can show ongoing drug use. Not a single victim's hair came back as positive for long-term morphine use, destroying Shipman's only shot at getting out of this. With that, the judge and the jury had heard all of the information from both sides, and the jury began to discuss the evidence among themselves. Now, Judge Forbes urged caution in their decision, 
Knowing the weight of this trial, and after all, there weren't any direct witnesses who actually saw Shipman kill anyone. He told them to use common sense and to try to keep emotions out of their decision as much as possible, which is obviously easier said than done after hearing months worth of details into the lives of the people he murdered. On January 31st, 2000, after almost four months of trial and after six full days of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict. A unanimous decision found Dr. Harold Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. When the verdict came back, Shipman was said to have been pretty unfazed and essentially emotionless. His wife also kept a blank face, but his sons looked down and seemed to be upset with the verdict, which makes total sense. Normally, sentencing would take place a few days or weeks later. However, defense attorneys asked that the sentence be passed right then. The judge addressed Shipman directly, saying, quote, You have finally been brought to justice by the verdict of this jury. I have no doubt whatsoever that these are the true verdicts. The time has now come for me to pass sentence upon you for these wicked, wicked crimes. Each of your victims was your patient. You murdered each and every one of your victims by a calculated and cold-blooded perversion of your medical skills for your own evil and wicked purposes. You took advantage of and grossly abused their trust. You were, after all, each victim's doctor. I have little doubt that each of your victims smiled and thanked you as you submitted your deadly ministrations. He then sentenced Shipman to 15 life sentences, along with a four-year sentence for forgery for good measure. Shipman only saw about four years in prison before hanging himself in his cell at HM Prison Wakefield on January 13, 2004, the day before his 58th birthday. A report from the prison indicated that he hung himself from the window bars using his bedsheets. A lot of the victims' families felt cheated by his suicide since they never really got a confession or any new information out of him, and he essentially just took the easy way out. News outlets went in both directions with the news, some claiming that he was a coward, others running celebratory headlines with puns like, quote, ship ship hooray, which, in my opinion, feels incredibly tone deaf. Now, it wasn't until after the trial that there were more investigations into Shipman's patient list, and this is what is known as the Shipman Inquiry. After being found guilty, there was an influx of people who contacted police, stating that their family members had died under mysterious causes while being under Shipman's care. This prompted police and academics to look over Shipman's statistics. They found that Shipman had 236 more in-home patient deaths than the average, most of them involving elderly women over the age of 75. It would be a near-impossible process to find out if all of these patients were, in fact, murdered by Shipman, but if they were, it would make him the most prolific known serial killer to date. The estimated number of murders committed to by Shipman is anywhere from 218 to 460 patients. Unfortunately, we don't and probably won't know the exact number of people killed by Harold Shipman, but we do know that these 15 were. I'm going to go through them and tell you a little bit about all of them before closing out the episode. The first victim was Marie West, an 81-year-old woman who lived in Hyde. She ran a clothes store and had a lot of friends. One of those friends was actually in the home when Shipman was there and killed Marie. Irene Turner was Shipman's next victim. She was 67 years old and had previously survived breast cancer and was living with diabetes. 
She was feeling a cold coming on, so she called her doctor, Harold Shipman, who, instead of some cold medicine, administered a lethal dose of morphine to her. Lizzie Adams was 77 years old and was a retired sewing machinist. I mentioned Mrs. Adams earlier as she was one of the victims that Shipman pretended to call an ambulance for when her family arrived at the murder scene. Jean Lilly was 58 years old and was the only victim that was married at the time of her murder to truck driver Albert Lilly. I also talked about Miss Lilly earlier as her husband was one of the people to receive a phone call from Shipman, making Albert guess that his wife died. Ivy Thomas was 63 and was the only patient out of these 15 that had been murdered on site at Shipman's practice. She had a few health issues that she was worried about, so she was a frequent patient at the practice. Shipman went as far as calling her a nuisance and made a joke about her needing her own section and plaque in the waiting room. Muriel Grimshaw was 76 and had run a glove factory in Hyde with her husband, but retired after his death. She was described as happy and jolly and enjoyed life. Marie Quinn was 67 and was last heard from by a Catholic priest named Donald Smith. He described her as being, quote, very chirpy, sounded well and happy. Her son never believed Shipman's claims that she had had a stroke, but never took it any farther until the news broke about him. Kathleen Wagstaff was 81 and was described as a very active woman. Her son said that she would regularly walk over a mile into Hyde to shop, and that the last time he spoke to his mother, she was very excited about Christmas. She had been a patient of Shipman's for a while and was said to have really trusted him even after finding about his past drug abuse, which is super fucking heartbreaking. Um, I don't know why, but this one made me super sad to read about, and man, my, my heart just hurts for all of these ladies and their families. Bianca Pomfret was only 49 and was murdered the next day after Kathleen Wagstaff. She was Shipman's youngest victim and was originally from Germany. Her death shocked everyone in her life, especially her son, who described that she had had a super busy social life and was often out with her friends and showed no sign of being ill. Her ex-husband also had kind things to say, mentioning that she loved life and was just outgoing and a lovely person. Nora Natal was 65. I mentioned Nora earlier when I spoke about her son Adam actually walking in on Shipman, checking out her collections, and claiming that there was nothing he could do to save her. Pamela Hillier was 68 and was a very active woman who would walk her dogs multiple times a day around her area. She was also a member of the Matram Parish Church, where she went every Sunday morning and made tea for in the afternoon. She had just started redecorating her home when she called Shipman for a home visit regarding some knee pain. Maureen Ward was 57 and was previously a college professor. She was battling cancer at the time of her death, but she was not actively sick when she was murdered by Shipman. She was planning to move to Southport and even had a vacation in the Caribbean planned with her friend for only 10 days after her death. Winifred Meller was 73 and was very excited for a pilgrimage to Israel that she had planned. She was described as a physically fit, enthusiastic person who loved helping out at local schools, going for walks, and redecorating her home. Her family said that she didn't seem ill or down in any sort of way leading up to her death. Joan Melia was 73 and worked most of her life as a postroom supervisor. After retirement, she stayed active, always opting to walk everywhere if she could. All of her family said the same about her, that she was in great health, great physical fitness, and a loving member of the family. And lastly, Kathleen Grundy was 81 and the former mayor of Hyde. 
I spoke a lot about Mrs. Grundy throughout the episode, so I will just leave it at that. Okay, well, that is everything that I have for you on potentially the most prolific serial killer known. I feel really sad now, um, and my heart just goes out to the victims and their families because this is not what you expect in the slightest from your doctor, like the person that you are supposed to go to for help at your most vulnerable. Shipman was truly an evil, evil man, and I wish we could have seen him rot in prison for the rest of his sad, pathetic life, but alas, we cannot. If you feel so inclined, go check out Google reviews or open cases on your doctors. Uh, once a lawsuit's filed, it becomes public knowledge, so Google is your friend, pals. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I hope to catch you back next time, and good luck sleeping!